Transforming care through genomic medicine, personalized therapeutics, health services and outcomes research, and innovations in healthcare delivery. We're Children's Mercy Kansas City, presenting our audio interview series, Transformational Pediatrics, with host Dr. Michael Smith. Our topic today is new guidelines related to tick-borne infections. My guest is Dr. Mary Ann Jackson. Dr. Jackson is the Division Director of Infectious Disease at Children's Mercy. Dr. Jackson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Good morning. So I guess Children's Mercy has already seen some cases of tick-borne infections. Is this, is this going to be a bad year? Well, we think it is. I think mainly because we know that ticks survive with temperatures over 50 degrees, and when we have mild winters, we have ticks that are actually available all times of the year, but here we started seeing a lot of reports about ticks starting in March. We've already seen several children with tick-borne disease, including life-threatening tick-borne disease, so it's a good topic to talk about. Yeah, and so, you know, bringing it back to the, to the, the community doctor, the primary care physician, uh, the general pediatrician, what are some of the, the guidance you can give them for recognizing a tick-borne infection, and what are some of these new guidelines? So in terms of rec- recognizing tick-borne infection, in every febrile patient at this time of the year, we're asking uh, physicians to ask about tick bites, but not only that, investigating whether or not their patient has had exposure to uncut grass, wooded or tick-infested areas, contact with dogs who may have had tick exposures, and travel to other high-risk areas. In addition uh, to the Midwest, uh, we see a high incidence of tick-borne diseases in North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, for instance. And remembering that the tick exposure may be in the patient's backyard or neighborhood and not necessarily uh, down by the lake. And that also clusters can happen within families. So inquiring about uh, uh, other symptoms in other family members. Yeah, that's interesting, Dr. Jackson, because I think you're right. We tend to think of, you know, getting a tick, you're out camping, you're, you know, you're going on a vacation with the family and you're going somewhere else. And, but yet your own backyard, even you mentioned your own dog, how often or how common is that for the pet to pass on a tick to a human? Well, it's not uncommon. And think about the dog or the pet as being a surrogate marker of a tick-infested area. So in many cases, uh, we hear from parents, you know, in terms of the child that we're examining because of tick-borne symptomatology, they say, well, I don't remember taking a tick off this child, but we took a tick off the dog and the children play outside in the same area where the dog plays, or we've taken a tick off a sibling, or I found a tick on myself. So those pieces of information are exceedingly important. Now, once uh, the physician, you know, is examining the patient, maybe there's a history of fever, some usually diagnostic tests are run. What's, what's the problem with those tests, at least initially? Well, it's a good point regarding testing. So, first of all, we have the symptom onset, and it's usually fever, headache, vomiting, and muscle ache. And in, in that essence, it's very, very nonspecific. And while the rash of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, for instance, may develop, it can be absent in 20%. So we do have to think about diagnosis. Well, it turns out that the diagnostic testing 
for tick-borne diseases are not positive at the time of the patient's presentation. And so our recommendation is there are some testing that you can do to in uh, keeping the tick-borne infection in mind, including blood counts and liver function tests and electrolyte tests. But doing testing to look for antibody to Rocky Mountain uh, spotted fever, uh, rickettsia rickettsii, or to ehrlichiosis, uh, ehrlichia shaviensis, those should not be performed initially in terms of making, trying to make the diagnosis, and you should never delay therapy while waiting for those tick-related specialized tests to come back. The and that is that Doctor Doctor Jackson is that a problem though? So are there a lot of physicians that aren't treating empirically that they're waiting um, for those tests to come back? Is that is that a common scenario you find in the community? I think that is a very common scenario. Uh, you now can find something called a tick panel, and so a physician may correctly suspect the diagnosis of a tick-borne infection based on exposure based on clinical presentation. They may even have some of the basic laboratory studies there that are triggering those thoughts, including looking for blood count changes with low white counts, low platelet counts, low sodiums or elevation in the liver transaminases. But they order something called a tick panel, and they think that is going to make the diagnosis. And truly, that is the mistake that we don't want to make. We should never order a tick panel and delay therapy waiting for that result because that is not the way we're going to make our, our diagnosis. Um, acute serology is virtually always going to be negative and you're waiting for the convalescent serology, meaning the antibody studies uh, are not going to develop until later in the course and that may be too late. So delaying therapy while waiting for those is not only common, but it is very detrimental to the patient. Uh, for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, for instance, we say for those children beyond five days of fever, um, and we know this happens quite often that the child is initially thought to have a virus and then discharged and then comes back still febrile. At five days, children with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever uh, who look very benign at the beginning do not look benign at that point. They have clinically deteriorated and in many cases um, are requiring intensive care at that point. Yeah. And so um, the empiric therapy is going to be doxycycline, correct? But does the age of the patient matter uh, when it comes to doxycycline? Doxycycline is the drug of choice no matter the age of the patient and should be initiated as soon as the diagnosis is clinically suspected. Uh, the uh, past mantra has been tetracyclines can stain teeth, but it turns out that doxycycline does not, and we now have some good evidence that there's no evidence of dental staining, enamel hypoplasia, or any kind of tooth color differences uh, with some more recent information that occurred where many, many children were doxycycline exposed because of an outbreak of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and we found no evidence of dental staining at all. So doxycycline is a drug of choice whether your patient is four months, 14 years, or 40 years of age. Right, right. My guest is Dr. Mary Ann Jackson. She's the Division Director of Infectious Disease at Children's Mercy. Uh, so bot bottom line is, is we have to recognize the symptomatology. We have to act quickly on that with doxycycline, regardless of the age. Um, I'm going to change focus here just for a second, Dr. Jackson. You are also 
uh, the editor of The Link, which is a monthly print and digital newsletter. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. The Link is a newsletter that we published since 2009. It's distributed to pediatricians here locally, regionally, and across the United States. And the purpose is solely education. And we target five different themes uh, within the link. We target uh, alerts, outbreaks, and hot topics. We target uh, vaccine education for physicians. We look at evidence-based practices for common clinical questions that arise in community pediatric practice. Uh, We have a visual uh, clinical vignette each month where a case that we've recently seen has occurred with a nice visual to go along with it, and uh, physicians may actually uh, test their own diagnostic skills based on the vignette. And uh, we also have a state-of-the-art where we look at a common problem where physicians just may not have the time to update uh, their knowledge about something they don't see very frequently. So we try to cover uh, all the ballpark in trying to update information for physicians. It's short, it's structured, they can look at it at their own uh, time frame, and uh, we're, we believe that it's, well, we know it's very well received by physicians in our, our region, and in fact, tick-borne infection is something we covered earlier um, this season, a month or two ago, and we've gotten a lot of good feedback on that, that pe- the pediatricians really appreciated having the information in a nutshell. Yeah. It's, is there um, a website for the link that you can share? There is. It's www.childrensmercy.org, and then you just can search for the link, and it will pull it right up on the, um, on the public gotcha. site. Okay. Gotcha. Well, Dr. Jackson, I'm going to thank you for all the work that you're doing. It sounds like you're going to be busy this time of the year. And uh, thank you for coming on this show. You're listening to Transformational Pediatrics of Children's Mercy, Kansas City. For more information, you can go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.